So we're going to take a look. If you have your Bibles, turn them to second or First Samuel. We're going to take a look at this uh, passage that we've been uh, that we've been looking at. All of these these uh, books, the two books of Samuel in particular, at one time were simply one volume. They they weren't first and second, but they were one book. And the book of Samuel follows this terrible. Um, I don't know what you call it, like a period of time, just a period of time in which the people of Israel, God had brought them out of Egypt, all the miracles, Moses, and all of that that you probably remember from Sunday school or even from church, and had brought them into the promised land, had conquered most, if not all, of their enemies. And the people started to degrade. In other words, they they just didn't pay attention to God. They didn't pay attention to the law. They didn't pay attention to uh, what was going on in the the life of the kingdom. They had no king. They had a series of judges. The judges were terrible. And so at the end of the book of Judges, it says there was no king, that these things were happening because there was no king. Now, a lot of us, when we read Samuel, we, we think that God did not want them to have a king. But that isn't the case. He wanted them to have a king, but it needed to be a king of his choosing and not a king like all the other kings of the world, a, 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 a worldly type of king, a military type king, a king that was going to be harsh and, and all of that. He wanted a different kind of king. And so the book of Samuel is taking us there. That's what this book is about. And so we're going to read part of chapter 6. And all of it is printed in your bulletin. I'm not going to read all of it. But now uh, hear the word of God and I'll show you what parts we're going to read. The ark of the Lord remained in Philistine territory seven months in all. Then the Philistines called in their priests and diviners and asked them, what should we do about the ark of the Lord? Tell us how to return it to its own country. Send the ark of God to Israel back with a gift. Send a guilt offering so the plague will stop. Then if you are healed, you will know it was his hand that caused the plague. What sort of guilt offering should we send? They asked, and they were told, since the plague has struck both you and your five rulers, make five gold tumors and five gold rats, just like those that have ravaged your land. Make these things to show honor to the God of Israel. Perhaps then he will stop afflicting you, your gods and your land. Don't be stubborn and rebellious as Pharaoh and the Egyptians were. By the time God was finished with them, they were eager to let Israel go. Now build a new cart and find two cows that have just given birth to calves. Make sure the cows have never been yoked to a cart. Hitch the cows to the cart, but shut their calves away in a pen. Put the ark of the Lord on the cart and beside it place the chest containing the gold rats and the gold tumors. You're sending us a guilt offering. 
Then let the cows go wherever they want. If they cross the border of our land and go to Beth Shemesh, we will know that it was the Lord who brought this great disaster upon us. If not, we will know it was not his hand that caused the plague. It came simply by chance. Now go down to verse 14. The cart came to rest in the field of a man named Joshua and stopped beside a large rock. So the people broke up the wood of the cart for a fire, killed the cows and sacrificed them to the Lord as a burnt offering. Several men of the tribe of Levi lifted the ark of the Lord and the chest containing the gold rafts and gold tumors from the cart and placed them on the large rock. Many sacrifices and burnt offerings were offered by the people of Beth Shemesh. Now drop down to 19. But the Lord killed 70 men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord and the people mourned greatly because of what the Lord had done. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, they cried. Where can we send the ark from here? So they sent messengers to the people at Kiriath-Jerim. The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come here and get it. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came to get the ark of the Lord. They took it to the hillside home of Abinadab and ordained Eleazar his son to be in charge. And the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim for a long time, 20 years in all. And during this time, all Israel mourned because it seemed the Lord had abandoned them. This is the word of the Lord. So in this story, the book of Samuel is about Samuel, but it's more precisely about David the king, which you'll look at later in the chapters going forward. But the book of Samuel starts with the birth of this young boy, Samuel, who becomes a prophet, the first real and great prophet after the prophet Moses. They had not heard really the word of God the way that Moses had preached until Samuel. And Samuel is born, he's a young boy, you all remember the story, he's in the temple and he's raised in the temple. And at the end of chapter 3, the narrative switches and it goes like a little... uh, I don't know, in, in a parenthesis, 4, 5, and 6, chapter 4, 5, and 6, leave Samuel. We don't know how old he is. We don't know he's just a young little boy. And it moves to this very strange narrative about the battle with the Philistines and the Ark of the Covenant and the Ark being taken captive. And so in chapter 4, you see that the Uh, the Israelites lose a battle to the Philistines. So they decide in their mind, we need more power, we need more strength. So they go and they get the ark and they take it into battle. And Dawson said they, they treated the ark like it was a magic item. They saw God as being useful, like a tool, a talisman. And let's take him in and he will bring us power and victory. Well, not only did they lose the next battle, but 
Hundreds more were killed, and the ark was taken captive by the Philistines. In chapter 5, they take the ark, the Philistines take the ark, into the temple of Dagon, their god. And I, when I was over at uh, New City, uh, Jeff did a little bit of explaining about the, the, uh, uh, the god Dagon, which I really didn't know. He said it was the god of corn. So you know they had gods for everything, and Dagon was the god of corn. And uh, so Dagon is there in this temple of Dagon, and they bring the ark in, and they set it down. The next day, Dagon is on his face, prostrate, worshiping, or worshiping the God of Israel. And the text says, they took Dagon, and they lifted him up and put him back in his place. It's really kind of funny. Here's the God of corn. And he can't even get off the floor. He can't put himself back in his place. And so they get him all set back up. And that night he falls down again. This time his hands, are cut, his hands break off and his head is broken off. And there's a lot uh, to be said about that. But the, the idea is that Dagon was no god. He had no head. And he had no hands. He had no strength. He had no power. He had no wisdom. He was nothing. Just stone. And chapter 6, so seven months, it says seven months, they kept the ark in the land of the Philistines and they were struck with a horrible plague. They got tumors on their body the land was overrun with rats. Many people died. It, was, it, it, it reminded everybody of the stories they had heard from ancient times about the defeat of Egypt by the Israelites and how their land was plagued and ravaged and they let the people go. And that story was in their memory. So we've got to get rid of these uh, this God of it, what do we do? We've had him seven months and every time we send him to the next town, they get, uh, they get tumors and they get rats and then we've got to send him somewhere else. So they decide they're going to send him back, but they don't know what to do. What do we, how do we send him back? And that's what I just read to you. Their, uh, their scheme to send the ark back to the people of Israel. So we're going to look at at uh, three things this morning that I hope will help you organize this. First of all, the ark represented God's presence. God was present. He wasn't inside the box. The box, the ark, which was probably a, a chest about this big with a couple of gold angels on the top, the box was called his footstool. It's where he rested his feet. And the top, the lid was the mercy seat or the place where mercy was. So the, the, the visual picture is that you've got a great king, but he's invisible and he's above. He's somewhere up there. Think spatially, not literally. He's up above and all we are dealing with here is his footstool. That means he is a great king, a powerful king, a majestic king. And kings would sit on their thrones, they would put their feet on their footstool and they would pronounce judgment. So the king was also the judge. And the king 
when the king was present, the people were to worship the king and to, to handle him gently. They, you don't just go in and, hey, how you doing, buddy, and pat him on the back and, you know, uh, how you doing and shake his hand and all that. You stay back because he's great and he's powerful and he's invisible and he's up there somewhere above everybody else. Definitely above Dagon. All they could think of is the box down underneath. Dagon's up here somewhere. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible says the box is here. That's his footstool and he's up there. So every other God in this world, every other thing that we worship and love and make important, so important that uh, Dawson said a few weeks ago, if you lose it, you've lost everything. That's the very definition of a God. Take something away. So we're going to look at God's presence. We're going to look first at God's presence unmediated. In other words, they're just you're just stepping right into the room with God and there's nothing between you and Him. And a lot of people are comfortable with that idea. I'm going to go into God's presence and I'm just going to face Him. And I'm going to do it on my own merit and my own whatever. So God's presence unmediated. Secondly, we're going to look at God's presence unwanted. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about God's presence unbounded. In other words, there's no nothing in, in the way. God is unbound. So first, God's presence unmediated. Dr. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, wrote a great book called The Holiness of God. I'm sure some of you probably have that book. He built his whole ministry around the idea of the holiness of God. And when we think of holiness, when we say uh, the words holiness, or we say, you know, we are holy, or I'm holier than thou, or you're more holy than me, what we're thinking of primarily is behavior. We tie holiness to behavior, to moral acts, moral rectitude, good doing. And it certainly includes that. But the word holiness means separate, other, apart from. So when it's talking about God's holiness, this is what R.C. said, and this is what he built his ministry around, which is awesome. That which is holy is that which is other, separate. With God, it refers to His transcendence, the sense in which God is higher, superior to anything in the creaturely realm. He's high, exalted, glorious, powerful, pure. So when... The Scripture's talking about God's presence and that He is holy. They're not talking about the absence of dirt or the absence of impurity or the absence of light, the absence of power. Uh, they're, they're not saying that. They're saying the presence of something. With us, if we want to be holy in our behavior now, just our behavior, we have to get rid of certain things in order to be holy, yes? We've got to purge them out of our lives so that we can be pure with respect to behavior. But not God. With God, it's not. He's, he's 
without impurity. He is the very definition of pure. He's the very definition of light. He is the very definition of goodness and righteousness and love and glory. This heavy weight of glory that He alone has. So when He's talking about holiness, He's talking about His divine attributes, what he, who He is, his, his divine attributes of being holy and glorious. Now bring that over to us. Just a little side note. When the Bible calls us holy or tells us that we should pursue holiness, the primary meaning is not adjust your behavior. What it's saying is separate yourselves from the world and to God. Separate yourselves from those things which weigh us down, our sin, which so easily, the book of Hebrews says, it so easily besets us and, and, and weighs us down. Even people that don't believe in God, they believe in sin. Go to their house and steal something from them. Break their car windows. They will believe in sin. I don't believe in, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in, oh, yeah, you do. All we've got to do is do something to them and all of a sudden, how could God let this happen? I thought you didn't believe in God. No, of course I don't. Our, our, our minds are just mixed up. It's to separate yourself. Now, once you are separate, you've, you've given yourself to Jesus Christ and you become His child. He declares you holy. And then from the rest of your life, you are to pursue Holiness or behavioral change. You're, you're looking for ways in which you can change. You're looking for help in change. You're looking for the people around you. Like at church, why church is important. It's not because this is a money-making machine. Believe me, it's not. I wish it was. So I can't show them my new car out in the back, right? So I, yeah. No. I drive a 66 Ford pickup. Think about it, folks. Your separateness, if you are in God's presence, wow, you are going to change. You're going to want to change. God's not going to want to take stuff away from you. You're going to want to give it away. You're going to want to get rid of stuff that is making you and bearing you and weighing you down, drowning your soul. All of those things. And that unmediated presence is what we're talking about. If you don't believe in God, or maybe you're questioning, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure if He exists. I don't know if God exists. I'm not sure. But I think maybe He is. I'll, I'll, try, to, I'll try to get some spirituality into my life. What you're saying is, I am going to take me with all of my junk, and believe me, you, you get to see Dawson and I, we clean up pretty good. I mean, at least he does. You get to see us really nice, looking good. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I do. Even my wife, my sweet wife, she doesn't even know everything that goes on. I'm sorry that she's here today and has to hear me say that. <laughs> Nobody knows. But God knows down to the bottom. He knows you and He accepts you and He loves you and He pledges Himself to you. 
But if you don't have a mediator, then you are going into His presence, into that throne room. He's up there. His feet are here. There's a mercy seat, which means you need mercy. All that stuff, all those images are there. And you're going in there and you have nothing, no barrier between you and God. And some people are fine with that. Some people say, you know what? He owes me an explanation. I'm going to go march right in there and I'm going to tell him what for and all you're going to well, whatever. Well, folks, you're going to end up on the ground like Dagon at the end of the day. And all the things that we trust and believe and we think are so great, someday they're all going to be gone. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you can be in the doctor's office and, and two seconds later you're walking out of that doctor's office and your life is irreversibly changed. Yes? You can come home, like a friend of mine came home from work. His house was empty. There was not a stick of furniture, even the refrigerator, and everything was gone, along with his wife and his kids. Day before, everything's great. Day after, not so good. You can go into your work, and there on the desk is a little pink slip, and it says, you're fired. And all of a sudden... Everything changes. We put so much of ourselves into Dagon, the god of corn. Please. We put so much into that and we get so little in return. But we think we can go and just prance into God's presence, put Him on trial, question Him about His goodness, but what this says to us, look at verses in, in this chapter 6. Look at the word guilt. It's repeated over and over and over. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 8, verse 17. Even these pagan Philistines who had a different God, the God of Dagon, they knew that they had to do something about their guilt, their wrongdoing. They broke a law and they were suffering with tumors, and they had rats overrunning their land, and some scholars have said they probably had maybe an outbreak of bubonic plague because, you know, rats carry the, the, the plague, and, and uh, they, the uh, bubonic plague is, you know, you, you have these bulbous, these bulbs that pop out on your skin. So maybe, who knows? We don't know. Whatever it was, it was horrific, and people were dying, and so they said, oh, let's get, get the ark out of here. Let's send him over to Gath. So from Ashdod, they go to Gath. From Gath, everybody's dying. They go to Ekron. Ekron, terrible. You know, these five cities of the Philistines. They knew they had guilt, and I have never met anybody. In fact, Dawson and I, and many of you probably have atheist friends, and they maybe they don't believe in sin. Maybe it's just, you know, they don't believe in guilt. They want to just put it away. But something will happen, something in our life. Why does it gnaw at the back of us that we know something's wrong, that, we, that we're just not right with the world? And we make pronouncements about things. You know, slavery's bad, it's always bad. Racism is bad, it's always bad. We can find those things that are always bad, but how do you know they're bad? 
Why do you have guilt? What is it? I think what the text is telling us, folks, is that the Philistines and the Israelites and all of us, even people in church, we want to come into God's presence and deal with Him on our own terms. And look, we could fill this church, we could have money coming out our ears if we just did not preach this message that I'm preaching to you right now. If we just wouldn't do it, if we just wouldn't mention sin and guilt and wrath, the wrath of God against the evils of this world, if, if we would just not mention that, if we would talk about money and prosperity and you can live in perfect health and God wants you to be blessed all the time and be happy and you're not going to suffer and if you suffer, it's because you don't have enough faith and on and on and on and on. Do you see what goes on? can't be. Wrath, the wrath of God in chapter 5 is in verse 6, 7, 9, 11, and in chapter 6, in verse 3, 5, and 9. It says, the hand of the Lord was heavy. Get the picture. He just finished saying this idol, Dagon, falls and breaks his hands off. And then he turns around and starts talking about the hand of the Lord. And the hand of the Lord is heavy. The word heavy is kavod. It's the glory of God. His hand is glorious. It's weighty. It's heavy. His hand, unmediated, with nothing in between. His hand will crush you to the ground. Maybe not now. Maybe in this life everything is going good, but someday you're going to die and then what? Hamlet, in his soliloquy, he said, what dreams may come. That should send a shiver up our backs. When we die, what dreams may come. Maybe we're still aware of what's going on around us. It's horrifying. And yet modern people, I don't know, we just have a... Well, these people did it too. The Philistines did it as well. They thought they could enter in God's presence unmediated with guilt, with God showing His wrath. And they said, okay, we realize we've got to do this. See, the idea of guilt is repugnant to humanity. The idea of God's wrath is repugnant. We just can't get our head around, why would He be mad at me? Look at what a great person I am. And on the outside, we look good. But he knows what's in there. And the thing about Christianity is he knows what's in there. And he tells humanity, come to me, trust me, and I will take care of this. And I'll stay with you forever. Really, Lord? Yeah, really. So God's presence. When we sin, when we feel God's wrath, The human tendency is to get away. Put distance between me and God. And these ancient people did that as well. Let's let's get rid of him. That brings us to the second point. God's presence unwanted. When we do something wrong or we're about to do something wrong, we we start doing all kinds of stuff in our mind to put God away, to put him at distance from us. I was talking to someone this week and I I told them, 
or, or last week, I'm sorry, um, that if, if God backs up from you, when you do something really raunchy, you've done something terrible, and, you know, and you feel bad about it, and there's guilt, and, you know, all that stuff, and you kind of just think, ah, man, I've got to back up. We think God backs away from us. Ooh, he did something raunchy. He did something awful. I'm going to back up, God says. I'm going to back up, and uh, I'm going to just stay away for a while and let them go kind of clean up their act, and then they can come back to me. The Bible doesn't say that. You may not want him, but I'll tell you what, if the Bible says anything from Genesis on to the end is that God wants you. He wants you. He loves you. He doesn't overlook your sin. He looks your sin and your, your unholiness right in the eye and then he does something to that. Look at verses 1 through 7. The Ark of the Philistines, seven months, and they ask this question, what do we do with it? They don't know what to do with the presence of God. It, it, it's, it's eating away at them, literally, plagues. And they don't know what to do. So they come up with, and this was understood all throughout the world, and it's even understood now in our day, in modern day. We feel like we need to do something to placate God. We've got to be good. Okay, I've done this bad thing, so I'll go and I'll read my Bible. You know, Chuck's always telling us to read our Bible. Uh, I'll go read my Bible and I'll pray, and you know, that lasts about five minutes. And uh, I'll try to do something so God will like me again. Well, good luck with that. You can't make Him like you or love you any more than He already does. Can you? Is there something you can do? to ingratiate yourself to God? I'm afraid not. So they send the ark away, and they send it with this offering. That's what all the, the card and the, and the cows, and they, you know, they're still superstitious, so they said, let's, let's take milk cows that have just given birth, and, and the, the pressure for them to stay with their calves, but they put the calves in a corral, and they send the milk cows, and they say to themselves, let's see which way the cow goes. If he goes to Israel, then we'll know that it's God that did this. And if, well, if he comes back to his, the calves, if the two milk cows come back to the calves, then, well, it's just chance that all these plagues have come on. It, I wish I had more time. I could tell you, I could give you examples of how we do that. Every day with God. Because we believe in chance rather than in God. Look at 13 through 19, these few verses here. The ark was in Beth Shemesh, and there was joy and celebration. So sure enough, the, ca- the cows don't go back to them. They go against their nature to Beth Shemesh, and they bring the ark back into the territory of Israel. And there is great joy. And then the Israelites in Beth Shemesh have the ark, it's back in its home territory, and they say this, let's take a peek inside. Everybody wants to see what's inside this box. So they open it. They remove the mercy seat. (laughs) And they look inside. 
And just like Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's fire goes, you know, everybody's dying. And it actually happened. Seventy people died. So the Israelites in Beth Shemesh asked the same question that the Philistines did. What are we going to do with the ark? Oh, I know. Let's get rid of it. So they call their buddies in Kiriath-Jerim and they send it over there to Kiriath-Jerim. Before they do, they ask this question. Verse, look at verse 20. Who is able to stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? Where can we send it? Where can we send it? Where are you going to send God in your, in your life? Let's just look at your whole life. What are you going to do about that? Just saying I don't believe in God doesn't make Him not exist. And if He does exist, you have got to figure out something about how you're going to be in His presence. You've got to. I don't care what you believe God is. It, He, she, them, whatever. If there's a God out there, if there's some supernatural being, uh, some superior being, you have got to, somewhere in your human mind, you have got to say, how in the world am I going to, to uh, be in a relationship with or have any access to this God or, or what? What is going on here? And every religion on the face of the earth says, if you do these things, God will, whatever God is, will like you. But you've got to do for God. You've got to do something for Him. Your behavior, uh, give money, I don't know. Whatever it is. And here, Christianity comes and God comes to mankind and says, I'm going to do something for you. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? They ask the right question. Who can stand? Can you? Can I? Can we really stand unmediated? No. There needs to be a guilt offering. There needs to be something. There needs to be some blood shed. God has got to have something that is really worthwhile. And that brings us to this idea of God's presence unbounded. Who is able to stand? Look at verse 20. This is the key verse in this whole section and leads us into the next part, which is Samuel coming back into the picture, and the narrative just gets fantastic. Who is able to stand in the presence of this holy God, and where can we send it? The book of Samuel leaves the narrative unresolved at this point. It just leaves it naked. There's nothing there. Who, do, who, who can have it? Who can, where can we send it? And it doesn't answer the question. Why? Because it's anticipating David, who comes, uh, what is it, 10 more chapters? Like 15, 16. He's going to show up. David's going to show up. Okay? So it's anticipating that. But even David can't stand in God's presence. So, very quickly, let me finish. Jesus' friend Lazarus died. Very close friend. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. Y'all have probably heard the story. They have him in the tomb for three or four days. Then Jesus shows up 
after Lazarus is dead. And Lazarus comforts the sisters of, or Jesus comforts the sisters of Lazarus, said, you know, it's going to be okay. And, uh, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And at the funeral, there's all the Jewish religious leaders, all the theologians, the priests, the lawyers of the law, all these people are there. And they see this undeniable miracle. He raises Lazarus from the dead and out from the grave comes Lazarus. These guys get together and they leave and they go back to Jerusalem and they get a council together. A whole bunch of them gather together and guess what they ask? The same question. What do we do? This is exactly their words. John chapter 11. What are we to do? This man performs many signs, many miracles. What are we going to do? And then they all agree, Ah, I know what we'll do. We'll take him outside. We're going to run him out of town on a rail. And then we're going to crucify him on that rail. We're going to take him out, get him away from us, take him to a garbage dump called Golgotha, and we're going to nail him to a cross. That's what we're going to do. Hey, he performed a miracle. We've got to get rid of his presence. Can't have it. Don't want it. God help us. What do we do? What I'm saying, what Dawson said, what Jeff is saying today over at his church, what we want you to do is say, I am in God's presence and I want somebody there with me. Yes? I want someone there with me that can mediate for me. And who better than the one who was cast out for me? Who better than the one who died for me? Who better than the one who himself had the power to conquer death and rose from the... Who better to stand before me and a holy God than the Holy One of Israel? Jesus Christ. Who better? And all He asks, folks, all He wants from you is to make a decision to trust Him. I'm going to trust Him. You know what? I know my life's a mess. I'm going to trust Him. Will you? I sure hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your kindness and your mercy that endures forever. Truly, there is no one like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath. You alone are God, and we are very grateful.